It's Thursday, June 24th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. I'll be on vacation for the next two weeks, but stay tuned. Next week, Rebecca and I have a great lineup of interviews for you. As for today, we have an interview with Jerry Sy, Executive Washington Editor of The Wall Street Journal and the author of We Should Have Seen It Coming, From Reagan to Trump, A Front Row Seat to a Political Revolution. Like the book, my interview with Jerry tracks the evolution of the GOP. We start with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Here we go. Jerry, thank you very much for doing the podcast today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. So, Jerry, the paperback of your book is out this September. I recommend listeners pick it up. It's a, it's a terrific book. And in that book, you chart the course of the Republican Party from Reagan to Trump. That's the title. The collapse of the Soviet Union was obviously a major event in that timeline. What impact do you think it had on Republican politics, generally speaking? Well, I think it was enormous. If you go back with the benefit of hindsight, which I did, and track the course of conservative politics and Republican politics from Reagan forward or from Nixon forward, the one thing you find is that the glue that held a lot of disparate parts of the conservative movement together was, in fact, the existence of the Soviet Union. It allowed economic conservatives and social conservatives and national security conservatives to all agree on one thing, which is that they hated the Soviet Union and they feared the communist threat and that that should hold them together despite their differences. And in fact, I think it muted the differences and hid them to some extent. And then when communism collapsed, that glue that had held the movement together kind of dried up, cracked and broke away. And then, then the kind of illogical alignments to some extent amongst those different kinds of conservatives became obvious. And in some ways, Nixon was the paramount example of that because you know he managed to create an opening to China, which was the Nixon goes to China moment we always talk about now, in large part because it was seen as an anti-Soviet Union move. It was acceptable to conservatives because Nixon did it but mostly because it amounted to the biggest move on the chessboard possible to contain the Soviet Union. So I think that was an enormous event. And I think the other event that happened post-Nixon but pre-Reagan was simply the Carter administration. I mean, I kind of start the book with the the end of the Carter administration because I think Jimmy Carter's troubles, and you know, he was responsible for some of them, and some of them were, he was simply an unfortunate victim of circumstances to some extent. But the collapse of the popularity of Jimmy Carter obviously made possible the rise of Ronald Reagan and a an acceptance of a kind of conservatism that was deemed to be beyond the pale to some extent before Ronald Reagan arrived. And only Carter's problems could make that possible for Reagan. One of the things you point out in the book is the early signs of Trumpism, if you will, early uh, indicators that a Trump-like politics, populist, nationalist, whatever you want to call it, would eventually emerge. I remember in the Reagan administration, there were a number of people on, on the right who kept saying over and over again, let Reagan be Reagan, and were you know, mightily angry about the Reagan 84 re-election campaign because they felt it had no agenda and was insufficiently, quote, conservative, end quote. What happened to that group of people? Did that just become the Buchanan protest movement against George H.W. Bush? To some extent, yeah. And I think the first real precursor to Donald Trump was, in fact, Pat Buchanan and his 
presidential campaigns in 92 and 96, the problems he caused for George H.W. Bush, the identification that he represented of a particular populist streak within the Republican Party, you know, and the damage that he did to former President Bush, H.W. Bush, was considerable. Jim Baker, who I talked to for this book, was very clear that the reason Bush lost in 92 was it was partly Pat Buchanan, mostly Ross Perot. And in those two characters, you had two populist precursors of Donald Trump. So 92 gives you a very early sign of what was kind of starting to course through the Republican Party. You know, Bill McInturff, who's a Republican pollster who has polled for years and years for us at the Wall Street Journal and our colleagues at NBC News, told me at one point, he said, basically, Donald Trump is just Pat Buchanan with his own airplane. There's that much similarity. There was you know, I hate NAFTA, I hate free trade, we're losing our manufacturing jobs, our cities are being hollowed out, immigrants are to blame uh, to the extent trade uh, agreements aren't, that you can blame immigrants instead. This was like Donald Trumpism at a time when Trump thought he was a Democrat. So yeah, I think that there were a lot of precursors. Sarah Palin was a precursor. As I said, Ross Perot was a precursor. Certainly the Tea Party movement was. And I think even to some extent, Republicans who were less unconventional than Donald Trump, like Mike Huckabee in Arkansas, all kind of told you there was a populist strain that was not only in the Republican Party, but that was widening and deepening as the years went by. Another big development in the sort of reconfiguration of the Republican coalition was Roe v. Wade passed in the, or decision came down from the Supreme Court in the mid-70s. We began to see evangelicals get much more active in Republican Party politics. How did that impact the shift from Nixon Republican politics all the way to Donald Trump being the president who appointed three Supreme Court justices that, at least in theory, could tilt the court towards the undoing of Roe v. Wade? Yeah. It was a big moment, and I I kind of think, and I recount this in the book, that I was present at the creation of the coalition um, that Reagan put together. Right. right after the Republican convention in 1980, Ronald Reagan left Detroit, which is where the convention was, uh, and went on a, a trip around the country. And one of his first stops after the convention was in Dallas. And at Reunion Arena, there was a meeting of evangelical leaders and followers, 15 to 20,000 strong, filled up the entire place. And it was Jerry Falwell and and Pat Robertson and a whole lot of people whose names became very familiar to Americans in the following years. And that was the first time really there had been an attempt to bring evangelical Christians together for a political cause. They had kind of been supporters of Jimmy Carter four years earlier. Jimmy Carter identified himself as an evangelical Christian and then became terribly disappointed in Carter because of his policies. And what happened was um, they decided they were going to get involved in politics. And the Reagan campaign, and Ronald Reagan personally, decided they were going to capture that sentiment and going to, we're going to seize that moment. And so Reagan goes to Dallas. He goes into Reunion Arena. There's an enormous eruption of applause for him. And he says to that group, I know you can't endorse me because you're supposed to be uh, non-political, but I endorse you. And right. that was kind of the moment where the two forces came together. And then what that meant was that Reagan had put together supply-side economics because he bought into the Jack Kemp, you know, Jude Winiski supply-side tax cuts and national security conservatives, which he did by co-opting, that's probably a pejorative term, I don't mean it, by embracing Gene Kirkpatrick and a lot of Scoop Jackson, neocon Democrats and brought them into the party. And then he brought in the evangelical Christians. And that was the three-legged stool that not only helped him win, but that has helped Republicans win ever since. And what Donald Trump 
did was basically simply embrace that evangelical Christian part of the coalition. Ironically, because you know <laughs> Donald Trump was a uh, pro-choice Democrat for most of his adult life, but you know, nonetheless, he embraced them and they embraced him. And without that, Donald Trump doesn't become president. I think it's pretty clear that those were the votes that made the difference in 2016 and almost made the difference in 2020. I think people forget that Carter did really well among evangelical Christians in 76, and then the bottom fell out, obviously, in 80. Anyway, we move along. President George H.W. Bush is defeated in 92. Bill Clinton becomes president. And you devote a lot of time in the book, as and correctly so, to the rise of Newt Gingrich. Tell us the uh, Gingrich story. In a way, the conservative revolution really reached its peak under Gingrich in 1994 when he did the contract with America, when Republicans won control of the House for the first time in four decades because of Gingrich's leadership. So I think Gingrich not only brought conservatives to probably their peak of power, even though they weren't in the White House in those years, but he also changed their approach to politics. Basically, he moved Republicans and the conservative movement away from kind of Ronald Reagan's kind of more gentle, amiable, non-confrontational to some extent approach to his enemies, to Tip O'Neill and the Democrats, to basically a pugilistic approach, an approach that said Democrats and liberals are not just wrong, they're evil. We have the moral superiority here. He also decided that he was going to change the Republican mindset, which he believed, and I think he was right about this. Republicans had been become too comfortable with the idea that they were the minority party, that they didn't control the House, they would never control the House. Maybe they'd have a periods in which they could control the Senate, but they'd never fully be in charge. And Gingrich arrives and says essentially nonsense. You know, conservatives are a majority in this country. You guys have to just understand it and embrace it and be bold enough to take advantage of that. So I think he changed the mindset in that way as well. And I think the third thing he did was he, and this was the genius of the contract with America, he convinced Republicans to convince Americans that they had a governing agenda, that they weren't just against things, that they were for things. And Reagan had done the same thing, obviously, but that was seen as kind of singularly Reagan, uh, Reagan's agenda. Gingrich arrived and said, this is a Republican agenda for running the country. And yes, we can be put in charge because we know how to govern. We don't just stand against things, we stand for things. And all those things together brought, I think, Republicans and conservatives to probably their, their maximum amount of power in 94 and 96. And Gingrich moved the entire political establishment to the right, not just the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party. And then by 98 or so, it kind of fell apart. But there was that moment in which Gingrich had picked up the pieces of the Reagan revolution and carried it forward and you know, took advantage of the moment in a way that others hadn't figured out how to. The impeachment of, of Clinton goes forward. He's impeached in the House. He's quitted, obviously, in the Senate. Gingrich sort of falls apart in the middle of all that, as I recall, right, with the expose of uh, extramarital affair, and it was kind of difficult to prosecute the Clinton case given that. And so there they are, sort of at sea, and along comes George W. Bush, and challenged by John McCain in the, in the primary. So what we had seen before of this rising populist uh, movement seemed to dissipate. Is that, is that your take, or...? I think that's exactly right. I mean, George W. Bush represented a lot of things, but probably not a populist movement. John McCain probably did in his own McCain-like way. Right. And he just came up short, you know. And I think McCain came up short because he decided to alienate 
that evangelical Christian wing of the party, which in uh, George W. Bush not only embraced, but uh, was comfortable with, and they with him, and that I think made the difference in 2000. But I think um, he wanted it to be what he called compassionate conservatism, which right. was also kind of a wave of, of the future, which was, I think he recognized that one of the flaws of the conservative movement was that it had come to be seen as something that was theological and doctrinaire on economic policy and not really concerned enough with the actual real-life economic problems of all the new Republican foot soldiers, the working-class Republicans who'd moved into the party for cultural reasons, but didn't really find anybody there who cared much or seemed to care much in policy terms about their economic travails. George W. Bush arrives and says, well, we're not, we're going to be the party that reaches out to those kinds of people. We're going to actually show some compassion. We're going to show that government isn't just about green eye shades and balancing the books, but about coming up with conservative programs that help regular people where they live. And I think that was kind of a wave of the future. But I think what George W. Bush didn't see, and I think a lot of us missed, was that the part of his personal and political persona was basically an, an embrace of the immigrant story of America and an outreach to Hispanics in particular. That was what he did in Texas, where he won 40% of the Hispanic vote. And basically a, a view of immigration that was Reagan-like, that said, this is good for America. This gives new life to America every time, every day, every year. This is the reason people love America is because we have become the great melting pot. And we continue to do that and it revitalizes our country all the time. That was the George W. Bush view. And I think what became obvious to him over time was that that had basically separated him from a lot of people in the base of his party who had come to view immigration as largely an evil force and something that was bad for the country's economy because it was taking the jobs of working class Americans and bad for the country's culture because it was changing the face of America in ways they weren't comfortable with. And, and I think that gap, and it shows up over and over again uh, over the 40 years that I write about in the book, the gap between the party leaders' attempts to come up with an immigration plan and an embrace of Hispanics that made political sense keeps bumping up against sentiment at the grassroots that says, no, 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 we're not there with you on immigration. In fact, we're moving further away from you on immigration. And that became pretty clear by the end of the George W. Bush terms. Yeah, that was the immigration reform, which the second term of the George W. Bush administration that was a centerpiece of their legislative agenda, and it, it crashed and burned in sort of spectacular fashion, actually, right? Yeah, no, it did. And so there, was, there were repeated attempts by party leaders, by George W. Bush, as you say, by John McCain when he ran for president, even by Mitt Romney, certainly by people like Marco Rubio, to come up with the immigration reform plan that would square these circles, that right. would basically embrace immigrants as helpful to the, the economy and to the country, while constructing a, an immigration security system that would help assure people at the base of the party that, no, the southern border wasn't being turned open. Uh, and they never figured out how to do it, and they kept crashing and burning on the immigration issue. And to me, more than anything else, the party's inability to square the circle on immigration is the thing that opened the door for Donald Trump. After 2012, when the Republican Party did the autopsy that famously said, you know, we lost because we were too hostile to Hispanics, we need to fix that. And one of the ways we're going to fix that is by coming to terms with a new immigration uh, plan. Donald Trump walks through the door and says, nope, that's wrong. In fact, that's 180 degrees wrong. We're going to do the opposite. And he proposes to do the opposite of what the autopsy says, and then wins the nomination four years later by doing exactly that. 
Before we get to Trump, I was driving back. I'll drop a name here since you dropped one prior to the interview. <laughs> I was driving back from the National Golf Links in Long Island. I'm on the Long Island Expressway, and uh, on the radio comes the news that Sarah Palin has been uh, named by John McCain as his vice presidential uh, running mate. Uh, I nearly drove off the road, uh, <laughs> but I think our listeners would be would be interested to know how how that came to be. How did this happen? Well, ironically, it happened because what John McCain really wanted to do was pick Joe Lieberman, a Democrat, to be his running mate. That was his vision of the ticket that I will assemble that will shock America and uh, shake up the system. And he was persuaded by people in his own campaign who argued strenuously, no, you can't do that. You can't go to the Republican convention and say, I'm nominating a Democrat to be my running mate. No, by the way, it's a pro-choice, a pro-abortion rights Democrat. Right. And there would be a revolution at the convention. He will be voted down. You will be embarrassed. The party will be split. You will lose. So having failed to get the running mate that he wanted, having been talked out of the running mate he wanted, he was casting about for something else to shake up the system to, to change the picture in a way that Joe Lieberman would have. And so he was presented Sarah Palin, who he didn't really know at all, right. but who certain conservatives, like the people who run the Weekly Standard, had become convinced was the new fresh face, a woman, a conservative, but a populist who stood up to big oil in a state that is basically financed by big oil and who would be kind of a, a breath of fresh air to working class Republicans who kept moving into the party because they were fleeing the Democratic Party. And you know what? It was true for a while. People forget this. I'd forgotten this. What a sensation she was for several weeks after she was nominated. I mean, she gave one of the most memorable acceptance speeches at a convention ever. She became the talk of the country. She was attracting enormous crowds. But then it became clear that, as you suggest, she was just simply unqualified to be vice president of the United States, didn't know anything about foreign policy, didn't know all that much about policy in general, and basically was there because of an image that she projected, not because people could be comfortable that she was a potential president. And it fell apart. And, you know, McCain essentially took the blame for that later. But he was trying to create a ticket that would shake things up. And he certainly did that, but not in the way he intended. So McCain goes down to defeat, probably inevitably, given the financial crisis and the stalemate of the two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. In 2012, Romney is chosen, most likely because he's seen as the one who has the best chance of defeating the hated Obama. It wasn't really that every Republican primary voters and caucus attenders were ideologically aligned with Romney. They just saw him as the one who could knock off the incumbent. Yeah. And he may have been, you know, that may have been correct. That may have been a correction. And, and, and maybe it just wasn't, maybe Obama wasn't beatable in 2012. I, I find it hard to believe Mike Huckabee would have been a better candidate against Barack Obama no, than no. Mitt Romney was. It's tough to be an incumbent, obviously, as you, yeah. as you well know. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break here uh, to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more of our interview with Jerry Sott. Welcome back to News Items. 
So we're done with Romney, and the Republican Party has at one point, I think, like 12 or 13 candidates for the Republican nomination in 2016. I was in Roger Ailes' office, actually, when Donald Trump descended on the elevator from the Trump uh, Tower in Manhattan. And it became immediately clear at Fox that Trump was a ratings bump. Um, He had this incredible celebrity factor that drove, I think, all of the cable networks to put him on television more and more because it boosted their ratings. But he also had a very strong message, obviously. And I wanted you to take us through sort of the first part of the Trump campaign, say, from the announcement to Iowa, where he loses to, of all people, Ted Cruz, I think, right? Yeah. And... I think goes from being improbable to inevitable once Iowa was passed and he survived that. It, it was an amazing, amazing transformation. I mean, he comes out and says things that nobody else would dare to say. You know, in his announcement speech, he says, Mexico's sending us their worst people and their rapists and their drug dealers, and we're going to stop that. And trade deals that my party negotiated are killing you. Uh, we're going to stop that. And then he just attacks everybody. And there's this sense that, and I don't want to be too defensive here because I'm in the news media, but this sense that he reacted to the bad coverage he got. Well, that's really not true. He was attacking the news media from the first week of his campaign before anybody had even had a chance to cover him or not cover him because it was useful politics. You know, he figured out that you define yourself by your enemies. One of your enemies is going to be the national press. The Republican primary voters hate the national press. Right. So I'm going to go on an attack. I'm going to attack against Uh, immigrants, against trade deals, against the Chinese, and against the news media. And I'm going to be defined by who I'm against, not what I'm for. And it worked. And and from the second poll we took in our NBC News Wall Street Journal poll after he announced, until he won the nomination, he was the leading Republican candidate in our poll, which is just amazing considering most of us, and I certainly include myself here, kind of wrote him off as something between a joke and a sideshow, somebody who was in the campaign not to win it, but to improve his brand name for future uh, commercial enterprises. And it just turned out not to be true. And I think what we missed was how completely the Republican Party had been transformed at the base, that it was now a, as Tim Pawlenty, the former governor of Wisconsin, liked to say, it's not the country club party, it's the Sam's Club party now. It was a working class party uh, that had moved downscaled economically, and that was very resentful of the elites. And I'm talking about political elites and financial elites that didn't think economic globalization had worked for them, quite the contrary, didn't think trade agreements had worked for them, quite the contrary, did think immigrants were taking their jobs and wanted somebody to say all these things. And Donald Trump showed up and said them all out loud at the top of his voice and then ran this amazingly bizarre campaign, which I remember going up early on to Trump campaign headquarters, and I'll put that in quotes, (laughs) at Trump Tower, which was basically one floor of Trump Tower with about maybe 15 or 20 people sitting in in a completely unfinished floor where there were uh, wires hanging from the ceiling, no offices, furniture that looked like it, and which had literally been borrowed from vacant offices around the building. And Corey Lewandowski was then the campaign manager sitting at a desk, as I say in the book, looked like he had uh, gotten it from an office rental company somewhere in New Jersey. And that was the campaign. It was Donald Trump, his plane, Corey Lewandowski, Hope Hicks, and a a few other people flying around the country from rally to rally. You know, there have been House campaigns that were more organized than the Trump presidential campaign. And for all those reasons, he was able to sneak up on people because he wasn't taken as seriously as he should have been. 
including and maybe especially by people in my business. There's, there's that great story. And after Trump has won the nomination and yet another shakeout of the Trump campaign is undertaken. And so Steve Bannon is brought in. And just before he goes into the Trump headquarters at Trump Tower, uh, maybe a day or two before, Maggie Haberman had written a piece that basically said what you just said, complete chaos, disorder, etc. And Bannon <laughs> gets in there and says, basically, oh, it's much worse than Maggie, <laughs> than Maggie <laughs> described. I always thought that was sort of the perfect characterization of where the Trump campaign stood in, what was that, August, I guess, right? Yeah, August, yeah. For, so, But it's just like unheard of. You've seen lots of campaigns <laughs> from the inside and the outside. I mean, you, you get your third campaign manager in six months in the couple yeah. of weeks after the convention. I mean, that that's a recipe for disaster normally, but they just plowed through it. You know, it was amazing. Charles Murray had the great line about Trump's candidacy in 2016 and again in 2020, really, uh, where he said, you know, people didn't like him, people didn't have a terribly high opinion of him, but he was the murder weapon. And I think the, the question I have now is, so you have a party that has gone from anti-communism, low tax, less regulation, and the embrace of uh, evangelical agenda to some degree. I don't think the Republicans ever wanted the dog to catch the car on abortion. <laughs> but anyway, you have that, and now you have what is essentially a Trump party. It's not a Republican party anymore. Going forward, what are the, I guess, tenets of this new populist party? Well, I think you, you start to answer that question by talking about how Donald Trump was not and is not a conservative. I mean, I could think of five things that conservatives traditionally stood for. Uh, low government spending, free trade, deficits are bad, immigration is a force for good, not for evil by and large, and we should have limited executive power. Donald Trump doesn't believe in any of those five things. And in, for most of those things, he actually believes the opposite or certainly acted as if he believes the opposite. So the first thing you have to say is that Donald Trump turned the Republican Party into a not conservative party. And the first question I think Republicans have to ask themselves is, is that what they want to be? Right. And it's kind of hard now to complain about Joe Biden using executive orders to enact policy and running up deficits if, in fact, those are the hallmarks of Trumpism, if you will. Right. So I think the first thing Republicans and conservatives have to do is ask themselves if they're still going to be or want to return to being a party of kind of more traditional conservatism. And then the second thing they ask, have to ask themselves is, if not, if we're now more of a populist working class party, and I think it might be that, do we want that party still to be molded in the image and likeness of Donald Trump? Or is there another way to take some elements of Trumpism and some elements of conservatism, find somebody else to be the articulator and leader of that in a less confrontational, less pugilistic way, and unite around that person going forward? And that requires either telling Donald Trump, thank you very much, but you're not in charge here anymore, or having him decide that he's had enough and he's stepping aside. I don't see either of those things happening right now. So I don't know how you get past Donald Trump under the current circumstances and how you craft a Trump-like kind of message if Donald Trump still stands in the way of that. So I, you know, I think that the 2022 midterms will tell us a lot about how that's going to work. And a lot of people, and maybe not a lot of people, but a few people of importance, Mike Pompeo, you know, Nikki Haley, Tom Cotton, are going to have to decide if they're going to step aside 
and allow Donald Trump to kind of run unimpeded in 2024, or if they're going to basically adopt the view that this is not a foreordained conclusion. If Donald Trump wants to be the nominee in 2024, we're all going to stand aside and let that happen. That's a big decision, and it's going to come up sooner rather than later. I agree with that. I mean, I think Trump is absolutely running for president in 2024. And I think the Republicans in 2022 have, you know, potentially, they're looking at a, a very good midterm election. The immigration issue is, you know, if anything, quote, getting better, and quote, for them. Crime has reemerged as a major issue, regardless of the facts of the matter. It, you know, has become a, a huge issue, a lot of press coverage. And then you have the undoing of welfare reform that was put together by Gingrich and Clinton. I think that's going to be a big issue. And if inflation takes off, that's a big if, obviously. But if inflation takes off, then you could see the Republicans making the kind of gains that they made when inflation took apart Jimmy Carter, basically. And, it, and if Republicans have a successful midterm, Donald Trump undoubtedly will claim credit for that because that's what he does. And then is he going to pivot and say, well, having helped lead the party back in 2022, I'm now not going to run in 2024. That doesn't, to me, seem very likely. <laughs> to, say, to say the least. <laughs> Jerry, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it and hope to talk again soon. Yeah, and my pleasure is fun. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Simran Singh. Next week, instead of analyzing news items on Monday and Wednesday, Rebecca and I will have interviews every day of the work week. Stay tuned for that. Have a great weekend.